This is the Owens Recovery Science Podcast, hosted by physical therapist Johnny Owens. All right, welcome back to another Owens Recovery Science Podcast. I'm Johnny Owens, along with the crew, Kyle Kimball, Zach Dunkel, and Ben Weatherford. It's been way too long. As always, it was freaking crazy. End of 2019, it feels like even crazier the start of this year, um, just catching up. But we got a lot of good information. We want to start getting back out there on these podcasts. So we're going to be a little bit more regular, I hope, in 2020. Um, today's a, a cool podcast because we're going to talk about tendon and blood flow restriction. And so this has been a question we always, always get. Uh, we have a lot of clinical trials looking at tendon pathologies. And now we've got a, a paper from uh, a lab in Germany, uh, some some good researchers, and I think they had a really good design. Um, they gave us some very enlightening insight on tendons. So today, uh, let's we're going to break it all down. Not just muscle, not just bone, not just angiogenesis, not just stem cells. Now we're moving on into blood flow restriction and tendon. So, guys, what's up? How's it going? What's up, man? Good not a, morning. Yeah, it's morning. So uh, yeah, I've had eight cups of coffee. You know, when we record these at night, I've had eight glasses of bourbon. Now it's eight cups of coffee. So I'll be a totally different dude um, today. I, I won't be able to stop talking, which is usually <laughs> not a problem that I have. So, Zach, you are not at home. You're up in the big sky area or whatever. So what do you, let us know a bit about what you're up to right now and, and what you're doing. Yeah, so I came up here to uh... – Montana to, to Big Sky to uh, speak at the Big Sky Athletic Conference. Um, so uh, we did that, spoke specifically on the use of BFR with uh, uh, coming off of an ACL injury, both as a prehab standpoint to address some of that anabolic resistance that we see that occurs relatively quickly, and then moving into how we can use uh, BFR in the acute post-operative stage and then continue out for you know, looking at Luke's paper, say 12 or um, eight weeks. And then um, I also addressed the uh, the Houston Methodist paper that was out to about 12 weeks. So, yeah, so it was, pre- it was pretty good. Um, listened to a few other folks talking um, upper extremity issues. And then uh, they had a whole day dedicated to uh, concussion management. So Nice. Yeah, and, and Jeremiah, our man Jeremiah is there. Um, did a BFR talk as well, right? BFR in baseball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Jeremiah spoke about BFR and then um, how, how they're using it with the Astros. Um, so it was good as well. Nice. Cool. So, so if you want more information on that, our last podcast, we did BFR in baseball um, with the World Series uh, Nationals and the, the non-World Series winning Astros, unfortunately. And we won't go into all the other Astros stuff. <laughs> right now and that that conference i've been dying to go to it so many guys with the teams are like you got to go because it's a freaking party that's all i hear it's a reason to go up there and drink and ski and watch the super bowl pretty much right yeah it's it's crazy um i mean i would say like the 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 information that's presented is kind of on the forefront of things which is really nice so you're not just not getting yeah. a lot of regurgitation of stuff you've already heard before that's just recycled um you know and then um you know, we, they, they would do lectures from, say, about 8 in the morning to 10, 10.30. And from there, we would break until 3 in the afternoon so people could go ski. <laughs> um, and then we would come back for an afternoon. Typical orthopedic type conference. Yeah, we would come back for an afternoon session from about, like, say, 3 to 6. Nice, nice. 
Well, um, and then you just you train what the Braves a couple of weeks ago, I think. Yeah, the the NL East champs, oh, reigning geez. champs, to oh, work with them. Yeah, yeah, did did that, did did that. Here we um, go. Here so we go. Hopefully, you know, got things straightened out on the right track for another uh, winning season. Cool. Anything else or anything coming up where you're going to be training? Um, yeah. So uh, before that, I uh, was down in uh, Fort Myers with the Twins. Uh, and, uh, I felt cheated while I was down there because shortly after I left, they signed JD, Josh Donaldson. So it felt, uh, felt a little cheated about that, but either way. And so from there, um, coming up, uh, at the end of this month, I'll be up in Nashville at Vanderbilt, um, doing an open course up there. Cool. Cool. Yeah. You, you get all the hard ones, man. Working with the teams up there, skiing, <laughs> Nashville. <laughs> I know. Man. I'm on vacation right now out in Montana. Well, if anyone's in the Nashville area, um, we we got a lot of stuff happening up there. My close close friend, uh, Doctor Dan Stinner, orthopedic trauma surgeon, worked with him forever. He's up in Nashville. Um, we got a lot of plans with um, with some studies. Eric Bowman, who was out at Curlin Job, is also out in Nashville now as well. So um, stuff in the works with some Nashville blood flow restriction um, studies. They already are part of my femur fracture trial. Um, we added them last year. So um, it's cool to have, have those guys on board. Kyle, what about you, brother? It's been a busy, busy start to the year. Um, we did a really nice course out at uh, Joint Base Lewis-McChord up in Tacoma, Washington, uh, military group up there. Had like 70 people in that, in that course. Um, it was <laughs> controlled chaos, but it was, it's a ton of fun. And, uh, there's a guy we all abandoned you like, Kyle, just do it, man. You're good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, there were, they had a couple of their, their SF people come over and help with labs. Which yeah. Were, we already trained. Yeah. Um, 10th group and, and the Ranger battalion up there. So yeah. that was good. Yeah. They were, and they were all cool. Actually, one of the guys uh, used to be down here in Santa Barbara um, at a place called Variant Training Lab. A uh, good dude named Riley O'Hagan, um, PT up there with the SF folks. And then your friend Anya uh, as well. Anya, yeah. yep. Anya's awesome. Yeah. Cool. So what do you got? Where are you going next? They were cool. Uh, next, we're headed to CSM. So everybody that's at CSM, you got to yeah. you gotta come out and swing by the booth, uh, earn your deflate and get a t-shirt from Ben and I. Um, there's one of us is not going to be there. Um, I you know, you can kind of figure out who that is if, if you just kind of use your deductive reasoning, but, um, is, is he like teaching a course I, in Hawaii he, or he, something? He's instead? on vacation in Montana right now. I forget. Kyle, his name. Kyle, Kyle, um, Kyle. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I hadn't given you too much grief about it, Zach. I've been pretty nice, but, um, you know, we do this, thing. There's, there's a big conference every year, Johnny, I don't know if you've heard of it, um, but it's called CSM. It's basically the largest conference that physical therapists do it's kind of a big deal you know pretty important thing for us to be there for but i don't know you know yeah yeah it's pretty much always on my daughter's birthday or valentine's day and i've done it for like 20 years yeah yeah yeah. just got grief my wife like oh awesome you're speaking on valentine's day so yeah so we got we got that going and i've got a uh a course right after that out in uh in colorado so basically we do that we do that conference and then we finish up Saturday. I got a course Sunday, a private group reached out, wanted to do a course just right after. And then from there I head to the, the Kansas city Royals. Um, and then speaking at a conference up in San Francisco for the California athletic trainers association, doing a talk on muscle strain management and using blood flow restriction 
to do that. And cool. we've got some, some upcoming public courses out in California as well. So we'll be around pretty busy uh, first quarter for sure. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, I did that Cata one last year. Uh, that's fun. Like awesome people out there. And so again, if anybody wants to go to one of these courses that we do, get blood flow restriction certified, be part of our club, get all of our kind of inner circle that we have and everything else that we like to offer with this, go to owncecoveryscience.com. We have courses all over the world now. Um, got London, Austria, Germany, and, and throughout the United States. So check it out. Weatherford, what about you, man? Um, yeah, so I've, I've had a couple courses so far this year, one down in Stewart, Florida, which was, was fun. Um, had Brian Graham hosting again at, at his place, Oceanside. Uh, and then, uh, just this past weekend, I was down in Edinburgh, um, in, in the Valley and, uh, worked with a good group down there. Um, you know, great facility, 20,000 square feet. So, so something I, I didn't necessarily expect for, for down that area. And then um, I'm joining Kyle at CSM, so so holding down the fort, man in the booth. Dunkel, we'll we'll miss you, man. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I understand. Um, you know, my wife apparently keeps forgetting that I'm going to be gone on Valentine's Day. She just asked me like two days ago if we should go on a date. I had to remind her I'll be in Denver. Um, so. Yeah, after that, I've uh, got a course here in, in this area in Bernie, Texas, beautiful Bernie. And then um, right after that, uh, turning around and, and heading over to Tampa to do a course for the, the Yankees staff, get the rest of their staff trained up. I know. I'm bummed I don't get to do the Yankees one, man. I did it last time. Uh, my friend Mike Shuck and all those guys, David Colvin. Um, but too many freaking conflicts right now. So And, and, I, and I give you guys like the fun ones. So I, I told yeah. my wife that, I, you know, I'm tired of us sticking to these holidays that are arbitrarily put on a calendar by the government to sell cards and that, you know, let's just do Valentine's on Sunday and be different this year and avoid the crowds at the restaurant. <laughs> you know what? That went over right. like a fucking ton of bricks. So I, I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> these freaking hallmark holidays man i mean it's uh they screw with the work that's all they do and, and you know yeah. our pocketbook so now i'm gonna have to make yeah. up for it with a louis vuitton purse or something <laughs> we just got an explicit rating too God by the way it. just saying ah, <laughs> <edit> it out. <laughs> we did so good for so long does that mean the floodgates are open uh, uh, i did my sugarland course last weekend and, and i i just put it out to start i'm like if anyone's offended by me cussing i'm so sorry because i don't know i do it and so i have to put that caveat out now damn it all right we need we need a jar every time one of us drops an f-bomb or something we'll put five dollars in it it won't matter anyways but cool all right well and then I'll just fill on my stuff right now. So I want to put out that we, here's why, one reason we were so busy during the holidays, we wrote, um, what's it called? Instructional course lecture or independent, independent study, study course. course for the APTA. But they also call them monographs. If it was a freaking monograph. That's, that's for sure. So um, the APTA orthopedic section asked us if we would put together um, a monograph on blood flow restriction so people can go to APTA and, and get kind of this abbreviated um, course, abbreviated being like 70 freaking pages long or something. Um, and so like everything, I had a year to, to round up everybody to do it and, and we're cramming it in the last two months of the year. But, but I'm proud of it. I, I think it came out really well. We're, we're doing final edits right now. 
And, and I, so I think it's going to drop pretty quick. And, and Steven Patterson was involved with it and Luke Hughes and, and then our whole team. Um, so that's going to be cool. So we'll, we'll, we'll put stuff out there that the APTA will have that on their website. And it'll be kind of the most latest, greatest of uh, everything we know on blood flow restriction from a clinical standpoint. Um, I finished up another paper that just got accepted for current reviews in musculoskeletal medicine. It's an orthopedic journal, um, new technologies and physical therapy. So I, I wrote about a lot of the stuff we were doing in the DOD as well as about blood flow restriction. Um, I brought in the guys from the U.S. Olympic team, Dustin and his group. They, they don't publish a lot um, because they don't want to. They, they don't want to give away their secret sauce. And so um, had to kind of twist his arm to, to talk about a lot of the things they're doing, but they didn't have to go into you know, deep, deep dive of exactly how they're doing it. So, so they talked about a lot of cool things from the sports medicine aspect that the U S Olympic team's doing clinically. Um, and, and then the guys out at the university of Colorado who were doing really badass stuff, um, with the total joint arthroplasties and, and all these kind of tracking data and things you can give your patients pre-surgery and post-surgery to see where they are and do they need to come in for more rehab or not. And these sensors they have in shoes and stuff like that. So, that, that should be coming out here pretty quick because we just finished uh, it, reviewed and, and went through with no problem at all. Um, got CSM next week. I, I got to freaking do another talk. It feels like I just finished the, the last conference two weeks ago, Extremity War Injuries. And I'm only doing one this year. We have a poster um, on, on the perceptual effects of blood flow restriction with different kind of devices. And then Dr. Kahalan and his group, um, we're going to talk about you know, he's, he's from University of Miami, kind of the king of uh, cardiac rehab and talking about uh, the aerobic aspects of blood flow restriction and, and how that can be pretty powerful in the cardiac uh, population. So we're actually going to do it in the cardiothoracic section, which will be my first talk in that group. So I'm kind of excited about that. Um, then I'm at the University of Delaware at the end of the month at another conference. Freaking, I think I'm doing like two conferences a month this year, uh, but this one's going to be cool because those are those are good folks that we've been working with down there. Um, so if you're around the Delaware area, please show up for that. And then just to kind of tease it, we've signed an agreement with USC, uh, University of Southern California, and we will be teaching. Um, we're, we're building out videos that they're going to use with their remote class. And so, Kyle, I think we're going to we're filming that in March, right? March or February? Yeah, like mid mid March. Mid March. Jesus, so. more, more work. And I think we ought to do some kind of a get together or something while you're out here, man. I'll, I'll be, be in fun. LA. Yeah. So uh, yeah, I, at least have some fun out there. I used to go to LA and have fun. Now all I ever do is go to LA and freaking work. But um, we're, you know, we have our partnership with the Air Jordan brand, um, and I haven't even been out to the facility since we we started working with them. So hopefully, go by there. And then if anyone's out there, Kyle can yeah. set up a party. On his credit card, yep. anywhere, pick a cool bar, <laughs> and we'll do it. Um, and, and then we also are in the midst of signing a partnership with Baylor um, and, and this whole confluent umbrella to, to start teaching for them as well. So now we're moving into teaching and into schools. They have they have multiple schools they work with. So that, that's kind of exciting to do this kind of advanced um, DPT student kind of what's new technologies wise and, and, and get these guys at least an introduction to blood flow restriction in some labs. Um, and then what last week I, I did an update with the Houston Texans. So that was cool. Cause they were the first NFL team to do this. So they've been doing this for years. Um, this is my third time to go back. And so, um, you know, we just did a, th this is what we know now gave those guys an update, but then they're also just, you know, they do it so much and have so much information. It was cool bouncing ideas back and forth. So it was fun working with those guys. 
Um, another tease there's we have uh, E60, uh, ESPN Films, um, about to come out. I, I've, I've been under embargo to talk about it by, by Mickey Mouse um, that we can't say anything, but it's basically – uh, I've kind of been at the start since Alex Smith, the quarterback from the Redskins was injured. He had a war type injury. Um, and, uh, and I know the, the, the team doc really well and, and a lot of the people that work up there. And so I've been working with Alex now for over a year. Um, and, and we actually got him into the military down here, um, on the base and he'll be back again next week. And so we've been working on everything to, to try and get this guy back, um, to maybe play in, in football again when, you know, at one point we thought he wasn't even going to live. Another point we thought he wasn't even going to keep his leg. And now it's, Hey, he's looking pretty good. This guy might actually be able to play in the NFL. So that is going to be released. And I'm able to talk about it because Jeremy Schapp um, did an interview with Alex and started showing videos of it. Um, that's dropping for the NFL combine, which is Alex's 15 year anniversary of being the number one draft pick. So um, we'll put that out. I think it's going to be pretty cool to see this kind of collaboration between the civilian sector and DOD with a high-end athlete like that. Um, and lastly, I was at extremity war injuries. So I do my yearly update for the DOD uh, extremity war injuries in DC. And um, that is the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, Orthopedic Trauma Association, the uh, Orthopedic Sports Medicine Society and the Society of Military Orthopedic Surgeons all get together um, kind of as a think tank. And we all present, this is what's new and cool. So it's kind of like what you said, Zach, at your thing. It's this this higher level kind of where, you know, it's it's talks you, you aren't going to get um, at, at typical conferences. And then we kind of break out in these steering committees. And and so that that's that was really cool. And I just want to kind of talk about one thing that once things get in my head, I'm I freaking I know I have Asperger's or I'm on the spectrum of something. I can't stop thinking about it. And so Johnny Heward, um, who's at Stedman Philippon, I I. I knew Johnny because we started working with him originally when he was at UPMC at the McGowan Regenerative Institute on this whole fibrotic cascade that happens after injury. It happens in muscle, happens after trauma, happens everywhere. And, and his work of trying to suppress that pharmacologically, and then we started looking at things that we can maybe do to suppress that from from a rehab perspective. And, and our shiny tools and our magic hands don't really suppress that cascade. And so BFR was one of those things that, that taps into a lot of the same pathways that Johnny Heward was looking at um, that, that might be able to suppress this fibrosis. But, but now he was the big winner last year. He, he got like $4.7 million for continued research from the DOD on his work in TGF beta and fibrosis, but also senescent cells. And so he talked about it last year and it was over my head. And so I've been able to talk more with, with Johnny on it. Had, had you guys heard of senescent cells before I started talking about it last year? Not ever. Yeah. So here's what they are, man. They're, they're super fascinating. So when you get older, your cells as they age should go through apoptosis. So they should die. And they put out this little signal saying, hey, I'm dying, I'm dying, I'm dying. And, and the factors that come out of that signal actually are are not good for us. So that's what causes this kind of chronic inflammation we see. It's also like when a cell um, starts to move into being a cancer cell. Um, your immune system when you're young is so robust that it, it basically goes around and eats all those things up. And also your stem cell pool being so robust helps alleviate and, and eliminate the senescent cells. But as you age, as your stem cell pool drops and your immune system drops, 
those senescent cells don't die, and that's what causes aging. And so what Johnny's shown is, is basically it looks like this is one of the key factors that, that starts to cause arthritic changes as well. Um, and, and so that, that's always that question, like post-traumatic arthritis, you know, if you get hurt or you get blown up, like we saw with our, our guys in the military, we would tell them, you know, it, if it went to the joint in about 18 months, you're going to really start to feel this joint because that's when post-traumatic arthritis will, will peak its little head up after trauma. But this degenerative arthritis, like my grandmother, she didn't do crap her whole life and she had bilateral total knees. And it's like, why did my grandma's knees fall apart when she basically was pampered and didn't do anything? And so it looks like these senescent cells, and she just had too many of those, that just starts this arthritic cascade. And so now Johnny at Stem and Philippon, they can test you for your senescent cell load and then apply an intervention to see if it can reduce it. So they're using drugs. Like one of the top ones right now is using these um, cancer drugs that increase your immune response. But, you know, who wants to freaking – my wife takes cancer drugs. They're a pain in the ass. Um, So they're looking at other – potential means. And um, he thinks blood flow restriction has a lot of the same kind of potential to knock out senescent cells. So I'll be at Stephen Phillip on this summer doing grand rounds and I'll be with Johnny and we're hopefully to start piloting off blood flow restriction and, and looking at if it starts to knock out senescent cells. So to me, that's, that's freaking fascinating. You know, we, we've always done this like BFR increases, the increases protein synthesis, increases angiogen. It's all increase, increase, increase. And then I think we were really the first group. I mean, I know we were. that started looking at, you know, well, this thing that's in this TGF beta pool that creates fibrosis, myostatin, we want to suppress that. It needs to be suppressed. And so people are looking at myostatin as it slows down muscle, but we were looking at it kind of from a clinical aspect of, well, we, we want to start looking at things that BFR might suppress. And so if we show that BFR suppresses a senescent cell load, that's, that's really into this regenerative medicine world um, because if the first NIH funded trial um, has happened for aging. And so um, there, there is some studies now looking at uh, ways that we can go to FDA approval of drugs that we can start taking to knock out senescent cells and slow aging. So anyways, I get on a tangent, but, but that's... So those- those senescent cells, John, do they just kind of live in all tissues really and are yeah. at different levels of expression? Yeah, so they are all tissues, um, joint, muscle, everywhere. And, and it's basically, you know, you want happy, fresh cells. And, and so all tissue is going to have old cells. And, and if those cells don't go through apoptosis and die, then those cells start to release the inflammatory cascade and all the bad stuff that happens with an aging, dying cell. Um, yeah, it, 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 the, you know, if that's why like all these guys in Silicon Valley are, are taking like, you know, these, these, these rich mofos taking things like rapamycin because rapamycin basically all, all mTOR is, is metabolism. So mTOR is an anabolic response and they're taking rapamycin, um, cause it's, it's shown to slow mTOR and also start to reduce that senescent cell load. Same thing, metformin. You know, metformin is probably going to be the hottest kind of easy access senolytic because it also looks like it will knock out some of these senescent cells. And also because metformin has been taken forever and we know it's really pretty safe. Um, you know, all these middle-aged cats like me are asking for prescriptions for metformin to see if you can knock out senescent cells. So that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. 
Anyways, I go on too long, but you know, probably every freaking podcast from this point forward, I'm just going to be doing nothing but talking about senescent cells and boring everyone out there. But when I'm out there sipping Philippon, maybe we will um, start to get some interesting, interesting stuff from that. All right. Anyways, into blood flow restriction in tendon. So this is a paper that came out of Germany. It's in the Journal of Applied Physiology, um, Dr. Sintner's lab. Sintner did the systematic review and meta-analysis on BFR and aging last year and showed extremely high effect sizes that BFR helps the geriatric populations probably more than it helps the young populations for, for muscle um, so, so that was an awesome paper that he put out. And so this one, they looked at, does BFR in healthies have an effect on tendon stiffness, tendon cross-sectional area? And, and so here's, here's the study design. And I, you know, I reread the study multiple times yesterday and, and I really liked their design. I think they covered everything pretty well, except for one major, like, damn it, why didn't they do this? Um, but one group did 70% of a one RM, um, high load training, and they increased it to 85% over 14 weeks. The other group did 20% of BFR low load exercise, and they increased it to 35% of a one RM over 14 weeks. And, and so the way they did that is basically every four weeks, they would retest one RM, and then they would take them up to 25% after four weeks, and then 30% after eight weeks, and then finally at the 12th week, they got to 35% one RM, same kind of progression in the high load group. And so they, they powered it out. Well, they needed 36 to be able to reach power. They recruited 55. So they actually took the recruiting. You know, we, we power up like 10 to 15 extra. They, they increased it to 25, which was good because they, they ended up only being able to recruit 38 um, to complete the study, but that was still enough to keep this powered out. And so they were untrained. They were males, so caveat there, this was only males. They were young, 18 to 40, which means younger than me, basically, um, but that kind of age range. And, and their hypothesis was based on what a previous tendon study showed, that BFR would not make any changes in tendon. And so we all, and we'll get into this, tendon, everyone's like, it's load-based, it's load-based, you have to load it. Um, the systematic review and meta-analysis last year, the year before on tendon said, you know, you have to, to load it typically in these 70% 1RM type loads, and it's going to take greater than 12 weeks to, to make adaptations um, to the tendon. That, that's kind of an important point because when people are dealing with tendon and they're like, I'm trying to get this person better in a month, you know, pretty much everything we've seen is it takes like 12 weeks at least or longer to, to see these adaptations happen to tendon. So tendon issues take a long time, um, whether you're lifting heavy or maybe after what we talk about today, lifting light with BFR. So tell your patients that the shit ain't going to end within, oh, damn it, I just screwed up our rating again. This isn't going to end um, in, in about a month. It's going to take three months or plus typically to see adaptive changes. Um, and so they did it three times a week, a day of rest in between. And their exercises, they did two exercises. They did either standing calf raises or they did standing calf raises and then they did seated calf raises. Um, I, I like that they threw in that after they got done, they had the subjects do a couple core exercises to help with compliance. <laughs> so maybe that's a, a German thing. You know, they, they had to feel like they needed to work out a little bit more to, to keep the subjects coming. Um, 
But the, the BFR protocol was pretty much the standard we wrote about on our position stand, 30, 15, 15, 15. Um, they were a little bit more mean. They had 60-second rest periods in between those sets, which, which that just sucks. That, that was mean of them. And, and they used a Zimmer tourniquet, um, 12 centimeters wide. So they used a wide cuff, 4.7 inches or so is what that is. Um, for anyone out there listening, Zimmer's, the Delphi basically licenses their, their stuff to Zimmer. So Zimmer's the surgical side of, of the Delphi product we use. And, and they did limb occlusion pressure. They called arterial occlusion pressure in standing, which I, I know Ben, he wrote a blog on this and had some thoughts on, on, on their percentage they use because they use 50% um, of arterial occlusion pressure in standing. And, and that's a little bit below the threshold of what we see we typically need to use. But I think when we kind of change the way positions matter, we can, we can kind of tease out what they really, what they really worked at. And then, so they ultrasound the tendon, they ultrasound the muscle, they looked at muscle strength, um, and they went really deep into um, their measures. So, you know, they made sure their intra-rater reliability was good with ultrasound. You know, they wrote something in there that I've never seen written in a, in a paper. You know, I know you're supposed to do this, but they even when they were pushing on the muscle and the tendon, they made sure that there was a layer of ultrasound gel that they could see. So they knew that they weren't compressing um, the, the soft tissue too much. They, you know, when they got done to measure, um, the, the changes in the muscle and tendon, they made the patients lay there for 20 minutes at a 90 degrees lock in position with this little device they made to account for fluid shifts. So they were, they were pretty hardcore on their measures. And so here's their results. Tendon cross-sectional area increased 4.6% in the high load group. Tendon cross-sectional area in, in, increased 7.8%. So these are averages between the groups in the BFR group. Um, so that's fascinating. 14 weeks, you saw significant changes in the tendon size of both groups. 7.8% in the BFR group, 4.6% in the high-load group, both significant. They had a control group that did nothing the entire time. Um, which is kind of the like, uh, why didn't you have them at least do low level exercise, which we'll talk about. The control group in all these measures didn't improve in anything. So I'm not even going to mention them. They're basically, it's, it's just people who came in and just had the measures done. Except I think in one of them, I'm not sure it was significant, but their calf size, I think, got a little bit smaller. Um, tendon stiffness in the high-low group increased by 40.7%. In the BFR group increased by 36.1%. So these morphologic properties, stiffness and cross-sectional area, of the Achilles tendons, I didn't even mention that, but they were just looking at the Achilles, increase in both groups over time. Gastroc size increased by 7.7% in the high-load group. Gastroc size increased by 9.1% in the low-load BFR group. So they both had significant increases. Gastroc torque increased 13.5% in the high-load group. Gastroc torque increased around 10% in the BFR group. So just, uh, I'll take a quote from the discussion here, despite a much smaller training load. So that's the key clinically. This was a much smaller training load than the high load group, which, you know, means that it might be more tolerable for patients because I've seen a gazillion tendons and high load training on the tendon sucks and compliance is hard to keep patients coming, especially if you say, let's do this for months. Um, low load BFR caused comparable adaptations in Achilles tendon cross-sectional area and mechanical properties, as well as in muscle mass and strength than the high load group. Typical tendon changes, which you would see in, in most studies, are between 4 to 7% if you do you know, up to 14 weeks 
of high load training. And so just to put that back in perspective, typical is four to seven percent. The high load group cross section area was four point six. The BFR group was seven point eight. So still within those ranges, BFR group, maybe if you're looking at size of the of the tendon, looks like it trended a little bit higher. So finally, a tendon paper. What do you guys think? And we'll, we'll break down the other tendon paper that had some major issues with it that was published years ago that made everyone say BFR doesn't help tendon. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, if nothing else, the, the design, like you said, was was awesome to, to see. I mean, it's something that I think a lot of clinicians can and probably should be replicating something similar, whether we're talking about looking at tendon or not. The way that they remeasured one rep max every four weeks and progressed the load on top of the new one rep max. So, um, great to see a standardization in, in both the groups there. Um, and, and it was just, if you have a tendinopathy and you're doing BFR or high load training, you have to do that. Right. That's the problem. Like BFR is hard and people get stuck, you know, like if you do BFR, no way you're like, damn, that was hard. But if you, if you just go by like RPE, you're never going to make changes. So if I had a tendinopathy, yeah, I would check one RMs and keep increasing one RMs on them over time. Yeah. And I mean, it was, it was really interesting to look at, you know, how specific they were on where they were measuring for the changes in tendon and how that probably affects, you know, some of the studies that look at tendon adaptation, you know, they looked at it at, you know, 25% of the length, which, you know, at first I thought it was closer to the, the myotendinous junction, but now, you know, without running reread, it was 25% from the calcaneal tuberosity. So distal end of the tendon. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that may be one of the reasons why the other tendon paper didn't, didn't really show a lot of change. Um, well, they did, they did 25% and 75%. So they did proximal and distal. In the other one? In this paper. Okay. No, in this paper. So, so let's, let's talk about that. So when you measure tendon adaptations, typically the mid substance or the middle of the tendon doesn't change much. So it's your proximal and distal ends that, that matter. So if you throw a mid substance measurement into it, it skews your numbers. And so the other paper, Kubo's paper, which we'll talk about, they did 25, 50 and 75%. So they did three points, but they did one point that's, that's valid, is pretty much known in the literature, doesn't make a change when you're measuring for tendon um, uh, quantity changes. Right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Awkward pause there. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 no, that's exactly what I, what I saw Johnny and kind of, kind of what I read as well. Um, I, I would like to reiterate kind of what you and Ben both were talking about, about making sure you're progressing load and, and that sort of thing. It was it was interesting. This weekend we had a course out here in LA down at uh, Movement Performance Institute. Uh, some guys that are running a cash based practice out of there hosted. They're called Move Lab, and and one of them even said to me uh, during the the course that he was really kind of against this BFR thing because of patients they'd been seeing that were coming to them and not getting better, and they'd been doing BFR for forever. Um, and, you know, it turns out it really kind of sounds like they just weren't being progressed. They, people yeah. had picked a load, they'd given them exercise like, oh, this is a lot harder than it typically would be. And they just kind of trusted that instead of measuring, looking at how hard is this person working, really getting at a high effort level and, and making sure that load is progressing. You just kind of got to, you got to push tissue hard in order for it to change, right? I mean, we, I feel like we really try to preach that, but. You know. 
And, and most people will never check one RMs in the clinic. Um, it, because you can't half the time, right? I get it in, in an acute situation. But then when we got into some more of our chronic studies, when we started measuring clinical 1RMs, and then when we really started doing BFR a lot in the military, and we would have these kind of failed surgical folks come, and we would we would test their 1RMs because we could before we got them onto their BFR program, their capacity was much higher than we really understood. Now, sometimes they would have some pain when they got on those higher loads, and we use rep max calculators, but we saw that they were really being underdosed. Um, and, and so I, that's kind of my problem with the Norma Res. If you take RPE, Norma Res is, 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 is fine. So Norma Res is a way to kind of use RPE to, to estimate 1RM. R, just because it's hard doesn't mean you're loading them right. BFR is just hard in general. But the load has to be something that's measured and you keep increasing that load. Like, I, I love that they started at 20%, so they, they let these people get used to it. Because we talked about this, 30% of a 1RM of BFR is, is a bitch. It's terrible. It's hard. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, <laughs> some of these studies where it's like, yeah, they, everyone started at 30%, and they were doing viral squats, and it's like, dude, you were telling me every subject was able to do that from start to finish. I, I have a hard time believing it. <clears throat> but starting at 20% and then increasing that, you know, okay, we're going to do 25%. 1RM and, and, you know, I would, I would have liked to test it at like two weeks. Um, and then we're going to do 30% um, and, and 35%. That's probably your threshold. I, I think getting above 30, then you start really kind of, um, it, it becomes kind of too hard. Um, but yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's my, I, I love the way they progress this study. And so I think that's the problem with Kubo. The, the study before. So, so Ben, you want to, you want to discuss that Kubo tendon paper? Yeah. I mean, it was fairly similar. They, they just um, only did 12 weeks and they did three days a week as well. The heavy load group um, were doing 80% one around and this was doing knee extension as opposed to looking at Achilles. They were looking at patella tendon and with the heavy load group, they progressed the load every four weeks with the BFR group. They stuck at a 20% of 1RM throughout, and it doesn't sound like they remeasured 1RM to make sure that they were staying at that momentary 20%. Yeah. And they talk about progressing the occlusion pressure, um, and they don't really discuss what pressure was used. In a graph, it looks like they went from 180 to 200 to 240 uh, as the changes from first four weeks to five to eight and then nine to 12. Um, so kind of hard to understand exactly what their progression was since they don't really walk through it. And essentially they found that, you know, size and strength changes in muscle were, were pretty similar with strength changes being heavy, uh, better in the heavy load group, which we kind of expect a little bit there. And then they showed size changes in the tendon for the heavy load group, um, and no changes in the size of the tendon for the BFR group. So essentially it looked yeah. like you know, BFR was not really making stuff happen for tendon, but the heavy load was. And uh, yeah, I, I highlighted something in their discussion that I, I think everyone that's brought up that the BFR is bad for tendon probably read this paper and memorized this line. Um, it says, it may safely be assumed that this leads to tendon injuries. <laughs> Similarly, actual cases of spontaneous rupture of tendons have been reported in athletes who have ingested large doses of anabolic steroids yeah. because this is obviously the same thing. 
So I, I've seen a slide at a conference that, that basically had that. You know, BFR <laughs> is not safe for tendons and, you know, may cause tendon injury or rupture. Um, yeah. From, from a study that didn't get their measurements um, probably right and, and didn't increase load. So they were doing exactly what you said, Kyle, um, that, that, the, that the folks said, you know. I'm not seeing this thing progress. Well, if, if you do BFR using a three pound low ankle weight for 12, to 14 weeks, uh, no, duh, you know, you're, you're not going to see much progression. You have to follow the adaptation by increasing load. Exactly. And there's so many ways to do that. I mean, we've, we've talked about it on the podcast before, but you know, you can really measure it. You know, one thing I would do in clinic is I always had a task or two that my patient had to do before we'd ever get going with BFR. And so I kind of knew like where they were tracking and when I could really start bumping up load with, with, with other movements outside of BFR. But then of course, looking at how they're doing with the BFR and pushing that load as well. Yeah. What about you, Dunkle? You're quiet, man. Yeah. Um, so what are you drunk? Are you out there in (laughs) Montana drunk right now? No, so you know what I would say is it's. I think it's always really important to determine either what a one RM is or what an MVC is, and adjust a percentage from there. And there's really simple formulas to do this. I mean, all you got to do is whip out your phone and just do some simple multiplication uh, and um, addition, and and you have a projected one RM. The caveat to those, yeah. the caveat to the formulas are you need to be as close to that one RM as possible. So. You know, I would right. say less than 10 reps. Uh, the, the higher that you go on that rep max, the more exaggerated that projected 1RM is going to be. But they're simple enough and they're easy enough to do. Um, it, it really needs to be done. And then um, you adjust your percentage from there. And I think like we've talked about in the past was, you know, within – so you tested it, say, baseline and you train for four weeks. Within that four weeks, it's just a progressive overload model. So whenever they complete that third set of 15, you simply just increase the weight. Then you formally reassess strength every four weeks just like they did in this yep. paper. Uh, and then you readjust your percentages and just continue on. And then kind of like Kyle said, you know, you always have one or two exercises where you're just going to load heavy to begin with. And so it's not like we're going to do BFR and only BFR for, say, 12 to 14 weeks. We're going to intermix some heavy load exercises in there as well. Um, But I think one of the big um, takeaways from this paper is like you guys had said, you know, these people who were like, well, we do BFR and this muscle just gets so large and so strong, it's going to overpower the tendon, lead to these tendon changes. Um, And it's nice to see that that's not actually going to happen. Um, you know, if we just do BFR in isolation, say coming off of a surgery an Achilles tendon repair or something like that, where there's going to be a prolonged period of BFR, um, it looks like we're going to get some tendon adaptations and and it's not just the architectural changes. So the cross-sectional area changes, but we actually get a, a pretty good increase in the stiffness of the tendon. Um, so, and what was like really interesting about this paper is we see the stiffness change, but then when, and they use the same units that you would use for young, Young's modulus for stiffness. So Newton per millimeter squared, but then they measured Young's modulus with a uh, megapascal. So, and they didn't see the changes in Young's modulus in either group. So it was interesting how when you just change units, yeah. I, and I don't know the reasonings and the methods behind that because it, it is a form of a measurement for the Young's modulus. But you know, either way, 
Um, I, I think it's yeah, and, and they went into that. I forgot exactly, but but I think they did kind of go into why Young's modulus. They don't think it changed in either group. Um, you know, some some new kind of data that that maybe that that won't change. Um, yeah, but I can't remember exactly what their rationale was. Yeah, it was it was just interesting to see because you know you look at the the formula for Young's modulus is force divided by the distance change, and. That's, mm-hmm. you know, Newton per millimeter squared. So, I mean, it's uh, – or millimeter. Um, but either way. So, yeah, interesting. And, and I think, you know, it just gives um, – lets us know that we're relatively – we can safely do this without kind of putting the tendon at risk. And then for individuals who don't tolerate load coming off of a surgery and whatever, you know, we can have a, a pretty good change to the tendon as well and not just a muscle change. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the reports of people doing BFR – and having frank tendon injuries or tears or even increased tendinopathies is is nil in the literature. And, and really nil, I've never heard of it. Um, of like, oh my God, this guy did BFR and he went for a jog and his tendons popped or whatever. You know, this isn't weightlifting steroid type levels of, of anabolics that people are pushing with, you know, steroids do muscle, they don't do tendon. Um you know, we, you've got the whole milieu going on here of growth hormone and stem cell and the angiogenic pathway and, and everything that's involved with lifting heavy BFR really kind of mimics. Um, so, so we're not tapping like one pathway like you would if you're just shooting yourself full of steroids. Yeah. And I think, you know, we see that with certain athletes, um, tendon wise and, and the safety of this with tendons, you can like, you just go to basketball players and a big challenge that we have specifically with NBA players and, um, collegiate basketball players is there in the NBA, you're averaging about three games a week. And these mm-hmm. guys have such long legs and such long lever arms that when they do resistance exercise, it just kind of really irritates the tendon that's already irritated yeah. from playing basketball on the hardwood court. Now what we do is we kind of reduce that load. Um, we can increase the muscle and then we can have this positive effect on the tendon. that isn't painful for these guys. Yeah, for sure. I thought you were going to say the biggest problem we have with basketball players is Tinder. Yeah. <laughs> that's a problem, you know. Get on the focus. <laughs> Stop. Get, put your cell phone down. <laughs> hey, a, a question for you, Zach and Johnny and, and Ben. I, you know, in looking at this Young's Modulus thing, it, it doesn't look like it, it didn't change to me. It just looks like there wasn't really a difference between – the two groups. So basically there was change in the BFR group also change in the heavy load group. But to be totally honest, like they start talking Young's modulus and strain and Newton's and I get a little cross-eyed. So, uh, well, what were you guys? So what were you guys? I, ben, I don't know that I want you chiming in right here. You know, too much dirt on me. Well, so, <laughs> so Kyle, on like your start to the podcast, I'm just going to keep it professional. We're just going to talk about this. Okay. I'm not going to throw, <laughs> okay, I'm not throwing insults yeah. to anybody, uh-huh. but you, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I already insulted myself, so I'm good. Yeah. So I, you know, like Young's modulus is like the elastic deformation of the tissue. So how much, you know, when you put, um, a weight on, any sort of material, how long, you know, what the weight is and how long does the the length change? How long, how much does it deform? And so when you look at that, then it goes to the elasticity of the tissue. Uh, The BFR group actually went down. It was just not significant. Um, It went from what, 1638 to 1495. 
and then the BF or the high load group went from 1539 to 1847. Neither of those were significant. Okay, so let me let me just jump in real quick. So because it's kind of confusing when you're like reading their results and they say both the high load and the low load BFR group in, induced significant increases in tendon stiffness, high load 40.7%, BFR 36.1%. Right. So how does Young's modulus relate to that statement there? Because it definitely kind of confused me. So That's what I'm not sure because Young's modulus, um, you, you can use – Young's modulus, the formula, is the same formula that they use for stiffness, which is newtons per millimeter squared. Like that's a that's a standardized u- unit for Young's modulus. They all, the, another f- measurement or another unit is like the megapascals, which is what they use, and they didn't find the difference. And and I don't know necessarily why they use that for Young's modulus. I and I, I don't know. And and tendon. Across its spectrum, from proximal to to distal changes, um, and, and so those are always these kind of deeper questions. You know, you want stiffness closer down to the bony insertion. You want more elasticity as you get closer to the myotendinous junction. And so, um, trying to take into account that is is, is also what I thought was a, was a portion of the Young's modulus equation. Um, but 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 definitely hard to. You know, I think hard to quantify from this study of exactly why that didn't change. Yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I was confused about that as well. And I think the main thing that we've talked about outside of this that is interesting is just the similarities and changes across all these measures. You know, no significant differences between the groups for any of these size or, yeah. or stiffness or torque changes. It, yeah. Um, it, it, you know, again, it's, so, a, it's a high load versus BFR clinical type of thing when we're looking at that ACL study from Ashish's uh, Rian Palmieri's, you know, high load training or high load with BFR exactly equal between the two groups. Um, and, and so I guess, I guess I'm kind of going on the wrong kind of idea here, but you know, if you're going to lift heavy, go for it, lift heavy. If you're going to lift light, lift light with a tourniquet on most tendon people do not like the heavy loading, um, especially in the acute phases. It's always what I said too. Like, man, if you could do this for the first six to eight weeks to kind of get them going, um, that that's what's interesting. I wish they had an interim kind of analysis at the at the seven week mark to see what was going on, and maybe they do, and maybe that'll be a separate paper. Um, but but I think that would be kind of fascinating because at that point it's like, and and man, I saw this so much with a lot of our kind of chronic tendon issues is we'd get them going like, okay, can you come six to eight weeks? It seems like this kind of gets you over the hump. We thought, well, we were just giving them some muscle um, and, and given a chronic tendinopathy muscle seemed to kind of alleviate symptoms that we could say now just go to the gym and, and keep, you know, kind of up with this high load program, which, which I still think is a great kind of way to go about it. Um, but maybe there was enough tendon adaptation if that's, you know, something was happening a little bit, even though we know it takes three months to get there, um, that you could start to transition off BFR quicker and get them out of the clinic and send them to the gym to start lifting heavy. And they're not bitching at you because it hurts all the time I do this and I don't like to do it. Yeah. I think that's like the, one of the big take homes I had with this was, you know, we can, when, when someone comes in with an acute tendon issue, 
we can address this. We get that analgesic response that we've seen from a couple other papers, yes. allows them to kind of go out and after the session, load the tendon just as they, they would through their ADLs. But then like when we're in the clinic and we're doing specific exercises, we can have a really good effect, not just on muscle, but also on the tendon. So it's not like, oh, we're just kind of buying time until this tendon calms down. No, we're, we're addressing the issue yeah. from the very get go. So then you know, we can get this tendon adaptate ad- adaptation and then progress you to high loads when you're able. Yeah. And, and, and that analgesic effect is something that's powerful and you get an analgesic effect when you lift heavy too. I th- it seems like you get more, um, just, just kind of from my history with it, when you, when you do blood flow restriction, maybe because we're just trapping lactate, um, so long during those rest periods you, and it's a longer kind of lactate exposure, which might be, flushing out, you know, the endogenous opioids. And, and, and so like for our lateral epicondylitis, you know, that's why it was just such a freaking winner in the military. And, and, and now, you know, we've got the study going on at NYU Langone and, and the Cleveland Clinic looking at lateral epi with blood flow restriction because it, it this, you know, it's like you got a low tendon, you got a low tendon, you got a low tendon, and then you get like a lateral epi or a rotator cuff problem. And they do light little bits of loads, hardly anything because it freaking hurts. And so it never gets this adaptive load. You, you, we never do like, oh, we got to do a heavy load program for their, for their lateral epicondylitis. Um, but when you do BFR, when you, when you do it on lateral epi, typically the patients were getting done. They're like, dude, I love this because my freaking elbow doesn't hurt anymore. I can hold a pin. So they get this analgesia, they get this buy-in. And now if we're also getting muscle changes and tendon changes in those kind of situations, that's like a huge win-win. So then it's like, get them in. Okay, we're going to do this. We're hoping to adapt your tendon. Um, we'll do this for a couple months. And then you start, you know, doing this kind of uh, program to, to keep it going on your own and, and try and start to, to do some heavy loading on that tendon over time. Yeah. And so I just want to bring this up because I, I think I misspoke a little bit earlier on the Kubo paper where I was talking about size changes for the tendon in the heavy load group. They didn't show changes there, which is maybe because of the way they measured with the 25, 50, and 75% length, uh, but they did show stiffness changes in the tendon. Um, so yeah. questions. Stiffness that, is a different Yeah. Questions that seem to come up here, obviously, are, you know, so one paper can't make any huge claims off one paper, but, you know, maybe more of a discussion moving forward on is it necessarily load that's, that's causing this adaptation? Maybe not. Um, obviously, there's a pretty high volume of work being put through the tendon here because they're doing two exercises at 75 reps each. And we, we haven't really talked about that pressure measurement either, where yeah. you know, the center paper measured LOP or AOP in standing and did 50% of that. And then Luke and Steven have put out a paper on positional measurement, where if we compare standing to, to supine measurement, which is what we normally use, you know, if you take a 50% of AOP or LOP in standing, that might be within kind of what we typically think of as effective from supine of that 60 to 80%, you know, based on Luke and Steven's paper, you know, 50% of a standing measurement was, was somewhere around 65% of the supine measurement. Um, yeah. So to get you in that window. Yeah. If we, if we start taking our measurements and standing, we might need to use a lower percentage of pressure uh, for, for exercises. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think Wormbaum did a pretty similar um, and showed a pretty similar change um, in sitting versus supine as well, Ben. Yeah. Um, 
so pressure changes. Um, but yeah, and, and I think too, if you look at the total number of reps that the BFR group did in that Kubo paper, um, it started out at, they did four sets, but it started out at 25, then went to 18, 15 and 12. So and, and single exercise. Yeah. Versus, yeah. They had a lot lower training volume. Right. Yeah. And then the, the heavy load did four sets of 10 as opposed to a three set of 10. So yeah, that, that's right. So mechanisms, what, what do you guys think? I, well, we can talk about what Sintner and them put out as a couple of mechanisms of why we're seeing this in a low load group and, and any other thoughts we have. Everyone's favorite so, seems to be in the discussion of, of you know, maybe something hormonal. Um, but, you know, I, I know Kyle's got some some thoughts on, on who he might point to for some some tendon ideas with this. Kyle, <laughs> Kyle you want to jump in there? Uh, I have no idea. No idea what you're talking about. Johnny brought him up yesterday in our call, not not me. Um, but it's what Ben is alluding to for those of you that are not aware of our internal joke um, is Keith Barr's work, just kind of showing that six minutes of activity, really kind of slow, controlled activity, um, being able to activate collagen synthesis. Um, and so maybe, maybe that plays a role in this, um, as well, but he also would kind of show that the, the collagen synthesis goes dormant for about six hours. And so maybe there's a couple windows, um, within a day that you could perform really kind of a low load controlled exercise and, and be able to stimulate some of these processes that might help to make that tendon more robust, if you will. So, Yeah. And that, that's, that goes into this volume thing, you know? So if I, and most people in clinical, um, just outpatients aren't able to do this, but we could in the military, pro teams can, college teams can. If, if, if I have a tendinopathy and we did this all the time in the military with them, um, come in in the morning, do BFR, and then come in again later in the afternoon and we do it again. Um, because they get done and there's there's no muscle damage, so they're not broke off. If you come in in the morning and you do 70% of a 1RM, you're, you're pretty sore. And you're like, hey, you want to come back in the afternoon? And they're like, ah, no, I'm good, um, maybe in a couple of days. And, and also, you know, lots of times their, their tendon was like, geez, my tendon kind of hurts. Um, but if you do BFR, you typically get a little bit of analgesia, so you're not feeling the pain and your muscle feels fine. Within an hour, you're like, I'm good to go again. And if we kind of look at Keith's work, you need a six-hour break to kind of maximize collagen synthesis. So if you got them first thing in the morning and they said, okay, come again later in the afternoon, we'll do another round. You're getting these kind of multiple spikes of potential collagen synthetic rate and, and adaptations to tendon. And patients usually can tolerate that really, really without any issue at all. So if I had a pro athlete with a tendinopathy, I, I think I would offer up that as a program um, let's get into the morning and, and then again at the at the end of the day, because that that was one of their their points was it was the the amount of cycling over time um, in the BFR group. It was it was you know high volume seventy five reps. It takes around that six minutes to to go through that. It took a little bit longer because they had a longer rest period, which is kind of falls in line with Keith's work that six minutes is kind of the optimal loading time on tendon, um, and and so that that might have played into um, also these adaptive changes. The, the, the other point um, is our friend, the stem cells. Again, we've, we've seen that, you know, there's papers that pointed out that the hypoxic milieu um, will stimulate the tendon stem cells. 
and and that might actually increase tenocyte content and and help with tendon repair. Um, so we can never discount what hypoxia is doing here, um, especially to to the stem cell pool, to VEGF, to things like that. Um, so I, I think that's something you know, and that's the thing. People are like, ah, low load won't help on tendon, and it's like, well, we're talking about something different now. We're, we're talking about putting a limb into hypoxia, which which stimulates a lot of other pathways. You know, we've even put it out there. Who knows? We might be able to, to see this with our rotator cuff repair study. Does the boost in growth hormone, which which helps drive collagen synthesis, is, is that a factor as well? Because we know that spikes whenever you do BFR right and you're able to track the lactate in there for so long. So you guys have any other thoughts on mechanisms besides those? No, not really for me. Oh, I was just going to say, I wonder if it's almost, you know, there's a, there's a load threshold. And so, so like Kubo didn't at 20% didn't see a change, but as that loads increase closer to say the 30% range and the longer you're training in that zone, is, is that like a lower threshold? As long as you do something, whether you have a tourniquet on, um, to produce the change. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Hasn't been teased out, but, but that would be interesting to know because yeah, if you could get into a lower load threshold, you might get more buy-in just across the board. With, right. Right. With most tendon problem. Yeah. Kind of, kind of what is that basement threshold? Um, and you know, what do we need to do to go from there? Yeah. Well, it's fascinating. And, and so we'll say this is a, we think a well-done study here, here. One of the fatal flaws, not a, it wasn't a fatal flaw, but, but damn it, you had a control group. Um, and, and the control group just did nothing. If they would have done work matched low load exercise without a tourniquet, um, I think it would have put this study over the top. Um, I, I get it though, doing research, it's, it's hard to keep groups going, especially three groups. And it, it might've been really hard to convince people to come in for 14 weeks and, and feel like they're doing basically nothing. Um, and, and so, you know, sometimes when people are bashing researchers for it, it's you're, Recruitment is what wins and kills studies. And, and trust me, with all sorts of studies that are slow in recruitment right now, um, that might be why. But they did, they did point that out. Um, and, and also, it would be nice as we move along to start get higher imaging um, beyond ultrasound. And so MRI would really be the gold standard. The problem with MRI is it's freaking expensive, especially if you're doing multiple reads. But... We do have clinical trials that we're involved with that will have imaging. So um, we, we had an Achilles tendinopathy trial going on in the military. We were going to use shear wave elastography. It basically has been canceled. We ran out of money. The champion of it, um, my buddy Copenhaver, got out of the military just as he won the grant. And so he wasn't able to really keep up on it. And so it kind of just fluttered out, which sucks. But But it happens. But we do have a rotator cuff repair trial, which is going to have um, T3 MRI looking at fatty infiltrate and tendon changes over time um, when we do BFR. So, so that's a clinical well, uh, large trial from a couple of really well-respected groups that we're hoping to see changes. We have a non-op rotator cuff um, trial with Northwestern University and Illinois Bone and Joint. Um, it's not a trial where it's a pilot right now. And then we're hoping to get NIH funding where um, we're going to look at hypertrophy of the cuff itself to see if we can reduce the fatty infiltrate um, percentage. Um, so fatty infiltrate in the, in the rotator cuff muscle, at least, 
isn't because you have more fat, it's because you have less muscle. So your percent fatty infiltrate goes up. So if we add more muscle, you have a lower uh, fatty infiltrate percentage, which is typically associated with a better outcome post rotator cuff repair, um, which really just says if you have bigger rotator cuff, you're probably going to do better rotator cuff surgery. Um, we have the two lateral epi studies going on right now at HSS and I'm mean, sorry, at uh, NYU Langone in Cleveland Clinic. We have an Achilles repair study. Um, Dr. Dracos, I haven't touched base with him on it, but I, I heard he's got it going. Um, it's going on at HSS. NYU, NYU Langone's also doing an Achilles repair study. NYU Langone's also doing a patellar tendon um, and, and quad tendon rupture study. Um, we have patella femoral pain studies, University of Kentucky. I know Brian Norin just got some money to start one. Um, NYU Langone's doing one as well. We have an E-STEM and BFR patella femoral pain. And so this is going to hopefully catch these tendinopathies as well going on at Fort Campbell and the University of Tennessee. We have a baseball um, MLB study looking at changes in the, in the shoulder at least. And then we have a clinical um, study for baseball players going on at Wake Forest, which is going to be looking at um, tendon, op- um, tendon issues, biceps tendinopathy, impingement in baseball players, and, and measuring all sorts of things from biomechanics to blood markers and biomarkers um, to see if we make adaptive changes there. So the clinical tendon papers um, are going to be coming over time. It's just going to take some time. You know, some of these have 100 plus subjects enrolling, but, but hopefully we get them done. Any other thoughts? I got a, I got a good chuckle on the, uh, on the control group in this, in this paper. Cause they had two people drop out of the control group and the control yeah. group did nothing. Freaking bored, um, man. <laughs> it's, uh, it's like this freaking research, yeah. man. It's not Dude, easy. Our, our femur fracture trial, we pay for rehab and we pay them to come, we give them a, you know, like, I forgot how much it is. And, and, and we still can't keep people coming over time. You know, rehab studies are hard as hell to just keep patients coming. And, and, and again, these are the, the other little things like, okay, you got this study, you know, everyone's got to go through this. And then, you know, I got an email a couple weeks back. Hey, this, this lady's in it, but she's got to leave for two weeks because her daughter's getting married and she's going to like Hawaii or something, you know? So, so what does that do to your study? Do you drop that patient now? Yeah. Do, you know, we can't write up every protocol deviation when you're writing up the paper. So it's real hard to keep it as clean. That's why I'm always jealous of, of guys like sitting there running these lab studies with healthies. But you see, even his controls are like, yeah, screw this. It ain't worth my time. I'm dropping out. <laughs> yeah. Well, they designed that exercise program to try to get better compliance. They even said that. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, you get to do two core exercises. <laughs> yeah. You want to come in and you do side, side planks. Yeah. Well, it, it's, <laughs> you know, we talked about this with other studies, but it's like, all right, we need 36 people to finish this. So we're going to recruit 55 just because we expect enough people to drop out that hopefully we'll keep 36 or more after. Yeah, I know. It's true. You power it and then you, your numbers go up. That's our femur fracture, Charles, at 250. Um, you know, so <laughs> it's daunting, daunting. But it's got to be done, and at least we're trying to do it. All right. Any other tendon thoughts? I think this just for me is like, you know, we need to rethink the necessity of load to create changes. Not that BFR is creating optimal change for all these things, but it's, you know, changing the thought process a little bit. Because I know, you know, discussion on muscle a while back was it's got to load, it's got to load, it's got to load. 
now it's like, all right, well, we know these other things create changes. So why wouldn't that make sense for, for bone and tendon as well, which that information is starting to come out, but, but still needs some more support. Um, so just kind of rethinking the, what is driving change and then getting into, you know, beyond the changes we see with BFR, what is, what is optimal? Do we still need to, to load this tissue to really create an optimal response, which I think we do. Yep. Yeah. So then key points here, tell your tendinopathy patients, it's going to probably take at least three months, no matter how you skin this cat, probably more. And just understand that this is a, it takes that long, even in healthy people to see the tendon improve, you know, disease tissue, um, maybe worse. The other thing three times a week worked in this study, you know, we always get this from clinicians. Can I do this tw twice a week? Cause I just can't get my people to come in three times a week or I don't have the insurance visits. We don't know. Um, you know, probably need that volume. So they might have to work in a day them themselves of doing something. Um, you know, like, like Zach said, maybe there's a, a, a load kind of minimum threshold. So if you're at least having them do it a moderate load on their day, they're not there um, to, to see if you can spike that collagen synthesis. Increase your load no matter how you're doing it with BFR or with heavy lifting if you have these tendon issues. If they hit BFR, we always say if they hit all four sets, they complete it, then increase their load next time. It's, it's a have to increase that load unless there's some reason you're restricted from doing it just like lifting heavy. If they can complete their volume, increase it. And if, if you're tip of the spear, then every two to four weeks, I would reassess their one RM and make sure you're still within that um, 20 to 30, 35% range. Um, and yeah, I, I think that's kind of the keys there. I love it for tendon. I, I, I saw so much good tendon stuff, but it was that same thing. You had to have this talk with these patients. It's going to take a while. Um, and and we can see these adaptive changes, but, but my buy-in was much more for low load BFR um, when the people came in than just kind of going straight into these kind of heavy load protocols. I think, you know, um, just kind of looking at it from a, pay, a patient coming into me to see, so see me for an Achilles tendinopathy. I don't, I wouldn't want to give the impression that I'm going to go straight to BFR because um, that's really probably not how I would manage it. You know, I would, try to figure out, can I teach them a way to load and, and, and really build some, some self-efficacy for things that this person can do kind of on a daily basis. And then if, if those things weren't working, then I'd probably go down the BFR road. Um, you know, I, I think something like a, just a visual, simple visual inspection has this person, have they been dealing with this for a really, really long time? And that calf muscle has kind of wasted away. And in that situation, um, you know, I might be more inclined to go more quickly to BFR because now I can give that person a substantial stimuli to cause some adaptation. Um, but I, I wouldn't want to kind of leave the impression here today that I don't, I don't think any of us that this would be the first place we go. Um, we kind of go this route with tendon because we're unable to really kind of go after these these people with um, moderate load, heavy load, building self-efficacy and, and those kinds of things. So um, that's just kind of my, you know, how I've always sort of approached tendon in clinic. And it seemed to work with like just thinking specifically with Achilles, you get into other tendons. I mean, crud, you can't even get the, the tendon people to talk upper extremity most of the time. So um, yeah, I would say specifically with patella tendon, Achilles tendon, I'm going to try some things. 
to get the patient sticking load across that tendon? And, and can I teach them to do it on their own and manage them through home exercise program? If I cannot, then, you know, maybe BFR is more prominent within their, their, their treatment protocol. So, yeah. And you got to understand your tendon and, and a first time flare up, you know, tendonitis type thing. Lots of times those people, if you just kind of shut them down for a little bit and, and then kind of teach them some tendon maintenance, they get better. It's these chronic tendinopathies that are just a, a real pain in the ass um, because, you know, they typically aren't completely shutting it down. And, and so the point here, too, would be that's a good outpatient thought. But if I've got a basketball Achilles tendinopathy and we say, OK, we're going to have to just shut you down for three months, um, you, you better have a plan. And, and so that that's where those groups are different at the CFI. That's how it was. You know, people came to see us from other bases all around the world. They're like, Hey, I've got four months here or three months here. It's like, all right, here's our plan, dude. And and this is kind of based on my best evidence way we're going to skin this cat. So I, I, and those people, I would, I would do this first high volume and, and then start to wean off and get them into heavy so I can send them back into the fight or into the game or back to their base with them understanding, okay, I'm just going to keep my loading progressions up. Yeah, I totally agree, Johnny. I mean, you know, you just, I think it kind of always sort of goes back to us sort of understanding um, activities, loading, um, expected responses and and that sort of thing and where that person is, you know, really kind of understanding their needs because, you know, like my area of practice for my career is certainly very different than someone in a a collegiate setting or a a professional setting or within the military. So, um, yep. Yep. Cool. Any other thoughts? Nope. This is fun. If you're at CSM next week, come see us. Well, three of us. Um, you can always, you can FaceTime me in. FaceTime you in. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. There's a, there's a moratorium on live broadcasts, Zach. We've, we've read the rules. Or, or any of these other courses we're at. Go to orangerecoverysciencecom if you want to attend one of our courses. Um, we, we go really, really deep dives into all this. Um, and we try and support you with, with updates and get into our private groups and um, also any of these other conferences we talked about. And if anyone has any specific questions, feel free to reach out to us at info at orangerecoverysciencecom All right, guys. Tried to keep it under 30 minutes. We went an hour and 15. Not too bad. <laughs> Not too bad. (laughs) Perfect. All right. Thanks, y'all. Thanks for listening to the Owens Recovery Science Podcast. Owens Recovery Science is a single source for PTs, OTs, ATCs, DCs, MDs, and other medical professionals seeking certification in personalized blood flow restriction rehabilitation training. Find them online at owensrecoveryscience.com.